1: Set rather than merely adopt international standards, China wants to lead rather than simply join international institutions. No power this large and globally integrated can escape scrutiny or debate. The rest of the world has done a lot of thinking about China 's power and what it means. But it is less apparent that China has carefully considered other countries' reactions to its conduct internationally. China may have reached a point where it believes that it can largely set the terms of its future engagement with the world. If it has, I believe it is mistaken.
2: G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham and this is a podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by Policy Forum and the National Security College at the ANU. Those comments you just heard were made by Francis Adamson, Secretary for Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Secretary Adamson joined Rory Medcalf in discussion as part of the National Security College's 10th anniversary speaker series titled Securing Australia in an Age of Disruption. And if you've been following the increasingly frosty relations between Canberra and Beijing, you are going to want to listen to this one. Francis Adamson has served the nation as a public official since 1985 and has led the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade as secretary since 2016. Prior to that, she served as international advisor to the then Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull. Uh, She has been Australia's ambassador to China, along with many other diplomatic and official roles too numerous to mention here. However, there are two roles that stand out in Secretary's professional biography, and they are her special advisor role to male champions of change and a member of chief executive women. Let's hear from Secretary Francis Adamson on securing Australia in an age of disruption right now.
1: Tonight I want to talk a little bit about the nature of the strategic landscape in 2010 when the NSC was formed, rather more about how it looks in 2020, and then chance my arm, I assure you this speech was up to date an hour ago when I finished (laughs) it, uh, about how we might want, when 2030 rolls around, to look back on the decade between now and then. What will we need to have done to have advanced Australia's national interest? Over the past decade, we've seen a profound change in the nature, scale and urgency of the nation's security challenges. In 2010, 9-11 and conflict in the Middle East still loomed large, consuming US attention. And the global economy was in shock following the global financial crisis. But international cooperation had rallied in response. The G20, after all, emerged and proved its mettle in a coordinated response to that financial crisis. There appeared to be little serious argument between governments that open trade, integrated economies and global institutions made sense and delivered the best outcomes for their people. U.S. global leadership was seen as self-evidently in that country's interests and without serious challenge, even as its relative economic and military power was inevitably declining as Asia grew in dynamism and strength. China in particular was transforming the global economy. Having joined the World Trade Organization in 2001, China was a player, one of many, working within the international system. Cyber was an issue, but compared with today, its complexity, pervasiveness, and pace of change were of a lesser order. Social media was changing the way people communicated and exchanged ideas, but its influence on national and international debates was still embryonic, and social media's use as a tool of mass disinformation was still largely theoretical. A decade on, Much has changed. Many of 2010's foreign policy and security challenges are still with us, not least terrorism. But in 2010, the trend of disruption inherent in globalisation and technological development was not yet apparent. It was still to reshape the foreign and trade policies of many of Australia's most important partners, such as the United States and the European Union. We're now facing a much more complex strategic landscape where these challenges are multi-layered, evolving at a faster pace, and their impacts are felt more quickly and directly. These are also tests of governance. Recent years have taught us that all democracies must closely examine and vigilantly guard the resilience and robustness of their institutions. What has been clear most sharply throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, is the increasingly inextricable nature of domestic and international policy and governance structures. Global crises like the pandemic and climate change are right in front of us, without yet the levels of global cooperation to match. Malicious cyber activity, disinformation and foreign interference are increasingly confronting governments around the globe. Especially in countries like Australia, whose open economies and democratic system can be exploited by external actors. National economies too are being tested more now than they were in 2010. The COVID-19 pandemic has seen levels of joblessness and government debt rise dramatically around the world in 2020. We need to plot the path to recovery, even as foundational ideas about economic openness are being questioned, including to ensure adequate resilience to shocks. Geopolitical tensions have intensified, making multilateral cooperation harder, but showing us forcefully the need for joint action to resolve complex global challenges from climate change to persistent humanitarian crises. And at the same time, COVID-19 has demonstrated, in Prime Minister Morrison's words, that, and I quote, international institutions are most effective when they are driven by and responsive to, accountable to, the society of sovereign states that forms them. But while global engagement and cooperation is essential to see us through the challenges we collectively face, The geostrategic landscape in the Indo-Pacific region is changing. Over the past decade, China's influence has risen as its economic weight has continued to grow, challenging American power, influence and interests as the US national security strategy articulated. This economic success has underpinned strong growth in China's military spending delivering a significant boost in the range and sophistication of China's capabilities for projecting force in its region and beyond. China has become the largest trading partner of nearly all countries in our region and a leading source of foreign investment, infrastructure construction projects and loans for many. Its development has been impressive and has brought economic benefits beyond its borders to Australia and others. But it has also brought disruption, something China's leaders themselves recognise. Unsurprisingly, this has also meant that China wants to set rather than merely adopt international standards. China wants to lead rather than simply join international institutions. Crafting foreign and strategic policy in an environment such as this starts with clarity about our policy anchors and strategic strengths, and then applying and adapting them to the challenges we face. The Government anticipated much of this complex arena of increasing contest in the 2017 Foreign Policy White Paper. Aware of the rapid changes to Australia's external environment, the government needed to develop a framework under which we could, in a coherent, consistent way, advance Australia's national interests, built on our foundational values, such as our support for political, economic and religious freedoms. The White Paper identified five goals for our foreign policy. It almost seems redundant today and you to uh, mention them, but I will, just in case anyone's a little rusty. They were and are promoting an open, inclusive Indo-Pacific in which the rights of all states are respected, delivering more opportunities for our businesses globally and standing against protectionism, ensuring Australians remain safe, secure and free in the face of threats, Promoting and protecting the international rules and institutions that allow us to tackle global challenges and stepping up our support for a more resilient Pacific and Timor-Leste. Seen from 2020, those goals remain the right ones, even if our operating environment has lurched in profound and negative ways. Drawing on Australia's tradition of constructive diplomacy, we're responding to strategic uncertainty and the accelerating trends I've described above. We are building new coalitions across the Indo-Pacific, developing and operationalising agendas with a neighbourhood that understands the importance of stability, of sovereignty, and of rules. We're showing leadership in partnership with the Southwest Pacific, co-designing new pathways of economic integration and sustainable development, building trust and common approaches to security and prosperity. And we are engaging actively and constructively in global forums to shape outcomes that matter to our countries and our region's future. But we're still working hard to promote an open and inclusive region. The government has added substance and momentum to our partnerships with Japan, India, and Indonesia, among others. Australia is rolling out an ambitious agenda to remain a leading partner of Southeast Asia by increasing our health, economic, capacity building, and security assistance to the region post-COVID. Our Partnerships for Recovery COVID-19 Development Response Program will include substantial investment in vaccine access and economic recovery, on top of our existing $1 billion a year development assistance to the region. Australia's support for a fast, safe vaccine rollout in the Pacific and Southeast Asia will mean we are able to return to more normal travel, tourism and trade with our key partners in the region, boosting shared economic recovery in a post-pandemic world. In the wake of COVID, our long-term goal of supporting our businesses globally has morphed into the urgent task of supporting national and international economic recovery. The biggest news on that front was the signing of the world's largest ever trade deal, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, RCEP, only last week. Through COVID, we've also worked hard to support Australians, whether here, at home, or overseas. DFAT has helped over 30,000 Australians return home since March, and we're continuing to support tens of thousands of Australians still overseas. I'm proud that we've been able to deliver the biggest consular operation in our history, even as DFAT and our overseas missions, in some cases under quite draconian lockdowns, played a key role in sourcing PPE and testing kits at the height of the early phase of the pandemic. At the same time, we've worked to support the international system. The government carried out our first ever audit of multilateral institutions, which found that the multilateral system delivers outcomes vital to Australia's interests, but is under unprecedented strain. Consequently, as the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Senator Maurice Payne, set out in detail in this lecture theatre in June, the government has committed to increasing our multilateral engagement. Mr. Morrison has spoken about this lately, highlighting the good and cooperative work being done this year in the East Asia Summit, APEC, and the G20. Work which has occurred, I should say, even while the pandemic has been going on. And Pacific leaders will meet at the Pacific Islands Forum in the new year to explore regional solutions to regional issues. Australia's near neighbourhood faces unique challenges that were clear to us in 2017, but have only become more urgent, such as climate change, the health of oceans, and disaster resilience. Many Pacific economies have been hard hit by the economic effects of COVID. Fiji's economy, for example, has shrunk by more than a fifth as international tourism has shut down. In addition to our $1.44 billion development assistance for the Pacific in 2020 Australia has announced a temporary COVID response package of $304.7 million to support our nearest neighbours over two years. Now to the future. In an era of greater strategic competition in which Australia's partnerships are increasingly being tested, advancing all of these goals will be perennially difficult. As we look ahead at the next 10 years, the key question for Australia will be how successful are we at pursuing our national interests in this tougher, riskier environment defined by strategic competition. China's economic recovery will be an important factor in how the region and the world emerges from what threatens to be a long and uneven recovery from, COVID, from the COVID-19 recession. But the questions around China are much more wide-ranging than simply its economic approach. No power this large and globally integrated can escape scrutiny or debate. The rest of the world has done a lot of thinking about China's power and what it means, but it is less apparent that China has carefully considered other countries' reactions to its conduct internationally. China may have reached a point where it believes that it can largely set the terms of its future engagement with the world. If it has, I believe it is mistaken, and that is because there is far more to be gained for China and for everyone else through working constructively and collaboratively within the international system without resort to pressure or coercion. The future of our region depends in part on China's decisions, but it also depends on the decisions made by other countries in the Indo-Pacific, including the United States and other regional partners. The main challenge for Australia's foreign policy is one of shaping with other countries, a regional and global order that responds to the new realities of power. Inevitably, we are involved in a competition for influence because how the regional order evolves will profoundly shape our security and other interests. If Australia did not have an agenda and exercise agency, then we would have simply to accept the terms dictated by others. The 2017 Foreign Policy White Paper sets out this fundamental challenge clearly. Our interests lie in stability and in the character of the enduring peace we seek. Defining the character of our enduring peace isn't just about China. We have to be influential with the United States too. Much has changed in the relationship between the United States and the world it did so much to shape and establish in the wake of World War II. In the harsher light of the early to mid-21st century, we have to acknowledge that the United States cannot be expected to lead in the way it once did. As the triumphant leader of the Allies in 1945, the United States rebuilt Europe and then went on to rebuild much of the world in its own image. As a culture, it remains incredibly attractive and powerful. But its internal challenges, as President elect Biden has made clear, will be a priority for the incoming administration and will shape the character of its international engagement. The moment of a single global global superpower has gone, and now we have a sharper competition for power, with many more visible and invisible sources of global influence than in previous decades. As the Prime Minister has said, we look to America, but we won't leave it to America. More and more, the United States has to share power even as we understand that American power and purpose at home and abroad remain essential to the regional order we seek, the sort of multilateral system we need, and to reviving the global economy. Australia also needs to work hard to build the practice of cooperation among all nations. How we cooperate, the extent to which the global community comes together on particular issues, is not a simple question of the degree of superpower competition or cooperation. In a tougher strategic environment, different nations and groups of nations are already coming together in different ways, sometimes through existing institutions, sometimes mini-laterally or plurilaterally. That underpins the rationale for Australia's engagement with the United States, Japan and India through the quadrilateral dialogue where each of the four partners sees the world in remarkably similar way and utilises their agency to shape the sort of region we desire. Against all odds in the face of a global pandemic sucking in all attention, Multilateral and regional summits this year, like the East Asia Summit, APEC, and the G20, have delivered unexpected cooperation, modest certainly, but cooperation nonetheless. While a reasonable bookmaker might have concluded none of these forums was worth a wager in 2020, each has taken place and each has provided valuable opportunities for global engagement and cooperation and for giving voice to some important principles. The East Asia Summit, for example, underlined the continued importance of ASEAN and its outlook on the Indo-Pacific, with a common appreciation that issues like the South China Sea and the rights of small states still matter, even as we grapple with a health and economic crisis. All of these summits have delivered clarion calls for equitable access to vaccines to underpin global economic recovery. Colleagues, much has changed in the security landscape that surrounds Australia in the past decade. If we want to look back on our time in another 10 years, in 2030, what will we need to have done as a country in order to be confident that we did all we could to advance Australia's national interest, even as our environment changes? First and foremost, we will have had to have pursued our own interests and acted with agency and purpose. Ideally, we will have done so in a way that helped our partners, influenced our allies and supported an Indo-Pacific order that sustained peace and the ability of all countries to shape their own destiny. We cannot hope to achieve this outcome alone. As one of my predecessors said, Australia cannot buy or bully its way in the world. We need influence and we need to build, sustain and use our policy instruments to our advantage. Secondly, we will have needed to maintain strong domestic foundations with a flexible and competitive economy driving recovery from COVID. This is why the government's domestic response to COVID is so important. Our international engagement supports our efforts to build our economy and our society, and nothing can be achieved externally without them. The White Paper's first chapter on the importance of domestic foundations continues to ring true. If our economic foundations are not strong, if we cannot safeguard our sovereignty and provide opportunity to our people, then we will not be able to exercise influence overseas. And thirdly, to be successful, we will also need to have credibly fused our interests and values. The things we stand for at home, such as openness, fairness and a level playing field, will shape our international engagement. It is the character of the international order, not just the way power is distributed, that matters. This is not about imposing our view on others. We know and understand that an era within which we felt comfortable has passed. But it is about building a system with the flexibility, resilience and openness that supports economic growth and sustained peace for all countries in the Indo-Pacific and globally. These are big challenges for Australia over the next 10 years, which I'm confident we'll be able to tackle together with our global partners and trusted partners at home, including, of course, the National Security College.
2: And while Secretary Adamson moves to join Rory Medcalf in discussion, we're going to take a quick break and be right back with more on the National Security Podcast.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax
1: and think about
0: work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow, wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
2: Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems. And people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hotplate every Monday and Thursday.
0: Well, thank, you. thank you very much, uh, Secretary. Thank you, Francis. That was not only a really illuminating speech and it took a, uh, a really big time horizon that I think uh, is really useful for us. You, you, you chanced your hand at the future as well as the past and the present and I think you spoke in uh, I, I think in some very useful and broad terms about how we may see the present phase of Australian foreign and external policy more broadly with the benefit of Ten years hindsight, I want to get a little more specific on that, if I may, and I want to sort of cover a few areas in this conversation. But I really would like to to zoom in a little on the Australia-China relationship, which is in the headlines frequently. And of course, uh, there's no you know there's, there's no question, there's no secret that this has been and is uh, a very difficult year in that relationship. Looking from your vantage point that you've projected ten years in the future, looking back at 2020, look at, looking at the Policy settings, the decisions, the way in which Australia is handling the, however you define it, the, the pressure, the leverage that China uh, has been exerting on us. How would you see the decisions made this year in the benefit of that that ten-year hindsight? What will be, what will you see as the the big picture, the objectives uh, of this year?
1: Okay. Well, thanks, Rory. Look, I think in 2030, inevitably, when we look back at 2020, uh, it'll all be about COVID, uh, and and that won't just be about COVID happening. By you know a decade hence, we'll have a much better idea, really, of of what the what the uh, the impact was economically, and of course, economically leads to strategically. Uh, I think we shouldn't underestimate the impact that. That COVID has had on all countries globally, and of course that includes China. It's sometimes difficult uh, to know really um, in in societies which are totally open. One normally has a, a pretty good idea in in societies that are less open. It can sometimes be difficult to tell, and, and it takes time to tell. And I think you know we we see because it's been such a shock, we see some contradictions even in China itself. I mean the the idea uh, that china needs to become more self sufficient now self sufficiency isn't that's not unique to china actually i think just about all countries have wondered about the degree to which they need to be self sufficient but on the one hand wanting to be self sufficient but but also more influential globally i mean that's a contradiction how how is that going to be how is that going to be worked out look when it comes to the detail of what we're dealing with now uh, i'm not so sure that that will loom large in 2030 but I think the principles and the reason I I sort of looked ahead and said if we're going to be in 2030 and we look back what will we have wanted to have done and of course making our own decisions is a significant part of that and I think there's frankly abundant evidence that that is what Australia does Uh, in my 35 years as a diplomat that's all I've ever seen us making decisions in our own interest but we've also made it clear that we uh, you know, we want a region. We want to find a settling point. I think everyone's talking about where might a settling point be? When might we find it? A settling point, w- which you know, is a region that is peaceful, secure, stable. Of course, where China is a, a major regional power, and and over time, increasingly, obviously, a global power as well. We want to be able to manage our differences. Uh, we, Australia, don't see that as being. Uh, too much of a stretch. Actually, we think it can be done. It's a matter of of talking to each other. It's a matter of dialogue. It's a matter of openness of communication. Now, look, there's a there is a, a fair degree of communication in both directions at the moment, but not in all the ways that we would like that to happen. So, I think you. Know, I've also talked. I've talked about the shaping of the region, the character of the region. I think one of the things that COVID has actually done is it's brought us all up short. What, what really matters? Rather than just ploughing on, what really matters? and I think you know, whether you look at the ASEAN Australia Summit, the sort of language that was used in the summits now is a platform for communication. What's on, what's on people's minds? What are they doing? But if you look at the strengthening of Australia's partnerships across the region, You know, with with individual ASEANs, with six of them, I think we now either have a a strategic partnership or a comprehensive strategic partnership. Uh, Discussions in mini-laterals have uh, established that, you know, everyone has their red lines. Everyone has national interests that they want to be able to defend. And one of the points the Prime Minister's consistently made is what we want and what we think others want also is a region of sovereign independent states are resistant to coercion and open to cooperation. Um, and it would be my hope over time that we will head in that direction, but I don't think it's guaranteed at all. Uh, and I think uh, we've all got work to do, uh, even as we look towards a new US administration.
0: Uh, we, we may come back to that if we have time. Thank you. I think you, you did touch also on that theme, you know, that, that very Key message about independent uh, policy decisions, independent foreign and uh, strategic policy decisions in this country. There is a view uh, that we hear from time to time, and I'm sure you hear it and 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 perhaps one can define it partly is propaganda, but it's out there that, of course, Australia doesn't make its own decisions. We're very much uh, reduced to a part of a US-China dynamic, uh, and we're essentially a subset of the United States in that dynamic. Uh, I'm sure you and colleagues in Australian embassies uh, have that view put to them from time to time. How do um, interesting? How do you respond? How, how, do, how do you and your colleagues respond?
1: Well, look, I mean, I, I hear that view... I don't see it, and to be honest, as a practicing diplomat, where I've been, you know, over over the last three decades, oh. I, I've not really encountered it either. I think I think it's a it's a it's a construct that some people use, but it's not something that tends to get in the way of you know, what we do, because diplomats themselves are all about, as my many colleagues in the room know, uh, you know, it's about uh, seeking to uh, to develop relationships, uh, to build things, actually, to build cooperation together, yes, to exercise influence, but to do so openly and transparently, and that requires a, a degree of skill. I mean, you know, not every diplomat uh, around the world can say that they're an expert in Australia and how we do things, but members of the diplomatic corps here can, and that enables them to know how we think, how we think about our interests, and to, more effectively than otherwise... Uh, develop our mutual interests. And, of course, that's what Australian diplomats do themselves. Look, in relation to the US, it's not surprising that countries with similar values will come to similar conclusions. That, that, That stands to reason. But the order in which we do it, the pace in which we do it, the actual decisions themselves are based on national interest and are based on you know, thorough discussion and consideration of all elements of decisions through the through the sort of proper processes. So, you know, it's not surprising. The world's moving at a great pace. Decisions need to be made. Um, I do recall, it must have been about three years ago, I actually came to ANU to, to launch a book uh, published by someone who now works for DFAT, Shannon Tao, on an independent foreign policy. She'd done a lot of research into it. She'd drawn the same conclusion that I'd drawn as a practitioner. We act in our interests. Of course, we're an alliance partner of the United States. That means we have some shared interests. But when we act, it's in Australia's interests.
0: That's um, a useful um, shout-out for uh, some of the expertise that ANU generates as well uh, and that connection with policy. Uh, So you've talked about diplomats and what diplomats do, and, of course, there's often a bit of mystique uh, about that, Uh, much less so these days, I think, when we've seen... the the extraordinary consular effort, the effort to help Australians in difficult situations around the world and the way in which a lot of your staff, I know, have been very stretched and challenged by that experience because they themselves have been dealing with, uh, really, COVID world. Uh, I don't necessarily want to put a question to you about that. You're welcome to, 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 to address that, but it has been addressed in the past. But there are other sides to a diplomat's job. And I wonder, in this in this environment where Australia is trying to achieve the the long-term strategic effects, the shaping effect that you talk about in your remarks, that involves needing to obviously understand our region, understand uh, the dynamics in the world, anticipate and understand how other countries are perceiving and responding to our policy positions. Can you shed some light on that side of the work that happens in your department?
1: Sure, and that's... Well, I think you've given a very good description of it. Actually, that's exactly what we do. I mean, we're not wherever we are to mark time. As the as the Prime Minister said, you know, we're not bystanders. Australia's not bystanders, and our diplomats are not bystanders either. You're not there to, to sort of record what's going on. Uh, you're there to understand deeply another country, another society, often by speaking another language, the quality of, of the contacts, the, the the doors that either open to you or if you're effective or remain closed if you're not, those doors then lead, uh, in my view and in our view and the view of many of my colleagues, it's certainly the government's expectation, they lead to outcomes. The reason you want to get through the door in the first place is to achieve an outcome. And that's, by definition, an outcome that brings benefit to the country you're working in, unless you're in a in a multilateral post. But of course, uh, we have a ASEAN mission in Jakarta, uh, and that job, of course, the job of that our ambassador there is to deepen and develop our relationships with ASEAN. ASEAN is absolutely central to the future of the region in a strategic sense and and a strong focused ASEAN. That's why I mentioned in in my speech the ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific which was mentioned frequently actually at the East Asia Summit. Not by absolutely everybody but by most countries in the region. Just as most countries in the region because they understand the importance of uh, disputes being settled in accordance with inter international law. So we work to, obviously, to encourage these things. You can't simply say international law is important. You've got to be willing to uphold it. You've got to be willing to call out breaches you've got to be willing to help to uh, develop solutions to actually engage in processes yourselves oh. to to ex- to subject yourself to processes as we did in the the um, boundary conciliation process with Timor Team LS. Uh, but it's also about being ambitious for the relationship and you know it really it's leaders who drive that ambition It's Prime Ministers and Presidents who recognise that the interests of their country are going to be best served by deepening a relationship with, Australia's case, India, with Indonesia, with Japan. Why do do they do that? Why does the Prime Minister travel to Tokyo in the middle of a pandemic? Why does he do a virtual summit with India in the middle of a pandemic? Uh, Why do... Why why do diplomats do what they do to prepare? It's because our national interests are best advanced through that way and in particular uh, at a time of great challenge in the region. There is a sense of solidarity, a sense of uh, shared, I suppose, burden sharing, a sense of uh, helping to create rules and norms that will serve us well in the future and if you're just going to be a bystander then it'll all just happen around you australia is not a bystander we are an active participant we want to shape a region in the interests of all countries in the indo-pacific but particularly of course australia
0: so you've mentioned covid how much harder has the covid-19 environment made that kind of work that kind of day-to-day diplomacy at understanding and responding and shaping to uh, to our region
1: Well, on on the one hand, and in a very functional way, of course it's made it harder, communicating is harder. But on the other hand, we have kept all 112 of our overseas missions operational during this period. So we've had people on the ground, they may have been in quarantine, they may have been ill themselves, but they have been communicating, and if you're an ambassador, that means you're communicating at very senior levels normally uh, with the government that you're... Uh, accredited to, or the country that you're accredited to. So, because we've been there, because we've been good partners, and you know, it's got to be a sort of certain level of modesty about this, but we get very, we've had very positive feedback during this period from our partners in the South Pacific, many of whom have completely closed off uh-huh. their countries, many of whom have relied on us. To, uh, to help them with PPE, to help them with uh, building the capability that they need. They've all got health systems, but they've needed our capability when it comes to epidemiology, when it comes to to dealing with with COVID. And, so we've, actually, and we've established humanitarian corridors. We've done a whole range of really practical things. You know, whether you call it a COVID pivot, whether you call it partnerships for recovery, we've been there, we've been fast, we've been responsive, we've been working. Working hand in hand, and we've been doing that across Southeast Asia as well. And that's it was very heartening that ASEAN has agreed that from next year we'll have an annual ASEAN Australia summit. It's why the government, even in a, a, a fiscal environment such as the one that we're in, has agreed to you know half a billion dollars worth of. Uh, of funding for vaccines across the South Pacific and Southeast Asia to very substantial funding for economic recovery in the Pacific for funding that will uh, help support development in the Mekong region uh, that will... Uh, go towards infrastructure that will enable us to deepen our defence cooperation. They're all very practical things and hugely appreciated. I mean, a $1.5 billion loan for Indonesia, you know, working across the region about what they need and how we can respond. And I think, so, although it's difficult Mm -hmm. at the beginning in practical terms... In reality, I think we've made enormous progress on a whole range of things that that matter. A lot of it's been quiet and unsung. We've done an enormous amount of policy development for government and on the ground, the doors are opening, the outcomes are being produced, the strategic effect is being further developed.
0: One of the things we like to do in these conversations is to look, uh, I guess, at at, at one's career and at uh, the the way in which you've achieved a kind of a staying power in your career, your advice to the next generation, uh, whether it's about work-life balance, which I know in a role like yours is, uh, is pretty special, I guess, uh, whether it's about that longer perspective. So are there any, is there anything you can share, uh, I guess, as advice to uh, people pursuing careers in this space?
1: Look, uh, it, it is a bit of a pivot to think about that, but uh, there are a couple of things I'd say that that might serve as as useful pieces of advice. Uh, I can think of three occasions this year. I mean, they were they were brief moments rather than you know. And, hours versus days where I felt I've hit the buffers I felt I've got no more to give and yet the demands are are so great and what do you do then well you've got to have a voice inside your head you've got to be a bit sort of objective I'm speaking to the students here about how you're actually performing how you how you feeling what are the signs to you that the stress is just getting too much Uh, and at that point you you just have to step back a little bit and you have to make sure you're getting the sleep you need and getting the exercise that you need and having the walks on Red Hill or doing the virtual Pilates sessions or whatever it might mean. I, and I, I, I don't miss those. They're on, I'm not sure that my ministers know it, but they're on Monday nights and <laughs> I, I'm always there virtually and if I just happen not to answer the phone for an hour, well, that's, secret, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> so you've got to recognise your, uh, your own mental health, your own physical uh, limitations and you've got to be very quick to, to then just step back build that resilience and keep going and look I can do it quickly, Uh, I may not have started out that way but I can now do it pretty quickly. When it comes to work life balance, I think I struggled with that concept even 20 years ago I have to say just what did it mean, I think most people do, is it like that or like that or what, what is the balance and of course we can all strike our own but I think these days the conversation is much more around partly because it's been technologically enabled if I can put it that way how do you sort of integrate things so that you can perform your professional role, whatever that might be, and actually your, your, your personal life, whether there are obligations in your personal life. And most of us have obligations of some kind, which we sort of willingly acquit uh, to friends and to family and to others. But but you need to be able to get all of that done. And, and I've had to get a lot more efficient at getting all of that done, uh, you know, including making my own lunches for the next week and you know that sort of that sort of stuff but look you, you know you you do it you just the the only thing I can now do for a while we all thought it's possible to multitask right, well it may be possible to multitask when you're below a certain age, I'm not sure what that is but I know I've passed it, the only thing I multitask with is watching insiders on the weekend while I'm doing a whole lot of chores, I watch it on iview afterwards (laughs) and then I can, that's the only time in the week I do two things at once but otherwise whatever I'm doing uh, gets my full concentration including time with family
0: that's that, that, That's really useful, I think, reassuring as well.
1: And a big
2: thanks to Secretary Francis Adamson for speaking to us as part of the National Security College's 10th Anniversary Speaker Series. You too can join the discussion by hitting us up on Twitter using at Apps Policy Forum, or you can speak to me directly using at NatSecPod. You can join the Policy Forum Facebook group at policyforumpod Or you can go old school and drop an email using podcast at policyforum.net. Don't forget to leave a rating and some feedback on whatever platform you pod with. And we'll look forward to speaking with you on the next episode of the National Security Podcast.